Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of On the Safe Side, a podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Kevin Drewley, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and I'm joined, as always, by fellow Associate Editors Alan Ferguson and Barry Bettino. The three of us are here to explore the four weekly themes of National Safety Month, an event that happens each June and focuses on preventing injury and death on the job. Guiding us through that journey will be David Consider, Senior Workplace Safety Consultant at the National Safety Council. We appreciate David's time and expertise and assure him that the special amulet for making his third guest appearance on this podcast is in the mail. David previously lent his time to On This Safe Site Episode 9 to discuss powered industrial trucks, and last year discussed slips, trips, and falls for a so-called National Safety Month mini-sode. This year, we're going to approach each of the four themes, emergency preparedness, slips, trips, and falls, heat-related illness, and hazard recognition, all in one episode, in whip-around fashion. So with that, David, welcome again to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, always great to partner with you and your team on these podcasts, uh, and thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. No, we appreciate it in turn. Well, let's get going just by asking what defines a workplace emergency, and are there different types? Yeah, uh, good question. So the scope of workplace emergencies may include uh, threats. It could be criminal acts. It could be a crisis. Uh, And then we have our common type of workplace emergencies that we see out there, such as fire, medical, natural disasters, hazardous materials, and unfortunately, workplace violence and active shooter scenarios. So whether it's a work incident or a weather-related event, cell phone service or cable and internet service may be interrupted during the course of emergency. So how can workers and organizations be prepared to respond and communicate during urgent matters? During an emergency, you're right, communications are really critically important uh, to our mission of saving lives. And to be effective, we really have to be prepared for what that communications plan is going to look like. And it should start with involving all of our employees, ensuring that uh, every worker is aware of the basic operating procedures in case there's an emergency. And our communications plan or strategy really should cover how everyone in the workplace uh, and really everyone who visits that workplace um, can handle really those emergency responders, uh, even the media. And so therefore, we really should have something put together and documented, uh, which which could fall along the lines of a crisis communication playbook. And really, when we're, when we're looking at awareness and training for everyone in our workplace, we're really going over items such as um, where are those primary and secondary evacuation routes are, whether it's off-site or if it's a shelter-in-place scenario. We really need to think hard about our communications equipment. Uh, you know, we strongly advise that we have two-way radios on site. Uh, we also have those mass communication systems, which uh, sends those urgent notifications to all of our devices out there, such as our PCs, our phones, our tablets, etc. We should also consider means for reporting those emergencies, what the alarms are, emergency phone numbers, notification to key personnel, notification of uh, a key maintenance personnel, and really accounting for everyone uh, when and after an emergency. And David, there could be a great 
deal of emotion and stress over the course of an emergency response situation. How can employers assist workers with addressing these issues before, during, and after an emergency? Yeah, one one important aspect of our preparedness is that emergency action planning. And really the goals in planning for emergencies are to protect first and foremost, our most valuable asset, which is our employees, and then our facilities, you know, really ensuring that that emergency doesn't spread. Uh, And then lastly, to develop that plan to resume operations if the facility is destroyed or um, damaged in any type of an emergency. And so really our management and our employees really must be committed to and involved in that emergency action planning upfront. Uh, We should know the program. Uh, It must be reviewed regularly and updated, as well as us doing frequent training and uh, uh, drills and so forth. And and really to wrap that up, our, our goal in emergency action planning is really to reduce, minimize, and assist, to reduce the potential for loss of life and property by anticipating all those emergencies that we can face, minimize that impact of an emergency, and then assisting all of our employees in understanding all of our roles and responsibilities, and especially of those to our coworkers. And so to dive a little bit deeper into that emergency management planning, we really have four phases. We want to prepare, right? Prepare uh, includes planning and preparing to save lives and to reduce damage before an incident. You know, so we're looking at um, examples like uh, reviewing our emergency evacuation plans, restocking uh, resources such as spill kits, first aid kits, etc. Um, the second phase is response, right? So this is how we're going to take action to prevent that further damage during an emergency situation. So for example, uh, you know, are we seeking shelter from a tornado? Are we shutting down gas valves in, in a uh, earthquake situation? Um, the third phase would be recovery, including taking actions to return to normal and safer situations after an emergency. So an example here would be, you know, getting that financial assistance for us to uh, start those repairs. And then the last phase of emergency uh, management is mitigation. And here we're really including those activities to prevent or to reduce the chances of an emergency even happening or to reduce the damages um, that are uh, really unavoidable in these emergency situations. Um, and, and, you know, really a good example here is reviewing our, you know, flood and fire insurance. Well, we're going to pivot now to the second weekly topic of National Safety Month, and that is slips, trips, and falls, which we know are a leading cause of on-the-job injuries. David, we also know slip, trip, and fall risks are varied Uh, But could you please take our listeners through a quick informational discussion about how some major risks and what those are and how to mitigate them? Let's uh, let's uh, let's take a look at our definitions first. Um, You know, when we when we look at a slip, it's when we have a loss of balance caused by too little friction between your feet and the surface on which we're walking or we're working. And so that being said, most of our slip related falls are going to result from the person falling backwards or to the side. 
Um, when we look at a trip, a trip occurs when you encounter an object in your walking path, for example, uh, and are moving with enough momentum to be thrown off of balance. And so most of our trip-related falls are going to result from the person falling forward. And then we have a fall, which is uh, uh, to move downward freely without control from a higher to a lower level. And falls could also occur at the same level. So with those, with those definitions in mind, some of those risks that contribute to these slip, trips, and fall incidents um, may include wet, oily, maybe even uh, 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 surfaces uh, and spills. We're looking at loose footing, uh, maybe unanchored floor coverings like your rugs, mats, and carpeting. We have uneven surfaces such as steps and thresholds. We got changes in elevation or levels. Perhaps we don't even have fall protection, uh, such as guardrails or even wearing a fall protection harness. Maybe we're distracted, right? We're distracted while we're walking, while we're using our cell phones, we're texting, we're not paying attention. We got uh, uh, perhaps obstruction in a path, maybe poor housekeeping. We may even take a look at our illumination because we may have poor lighting out there. Uh, we got weather that could affect uh, and contribute to these slip trips and fall incidents, rain, snow, and ice, and even looking at the type of shoes and soles that we're wearing. Again, all of these are items that could uh, contribute to our slip, trip, and fall incidents. And I would say that um, really some practical steps to mitigate and to prevent these uh, slip, trip, and fall incidents from occurring it really all starts with training and awareness. So our employees can recognize these hazards, they can evaluate them, then they can control them. We should also have uh, regular inspections being conducted. Uh, we, should, we should be out there looking at those uh, floors that may be coming compromised. Uh, we could take a look at some of the cleaning methods that we're using. Uh, and even in the engineering phase, you know, uh, considering our flooring and our work environment, uh, ensuring that our workers are wearing the right footwear. And then I would say, you know, overall, we really should be thinking about our people and those organizational factors, which may contribute to those slip trips and fall incidents. Which practical solutions to address a facility design might you recommend to help curb those slip, trip and fall hazards? Yeah, and, and that's another good question. So again, all really starts at that pre-planning stages of any facility or building design. And us safety professionals really need to be a part of those conversations. We also need to have others involved uh, in that as well, such as maintenance, engineering, even our facility folks. We may even want to contact some external partners, such as consultants or even a PE, a professional engineer. And specifically, what, what we're looking at during these pre-planning stages is the way that our aisles and passageways are set up, our building entrances, including ramps and stairways, how is our docks and ramps and where are those going to be located at? Do we have any elevated surfaces? What's the flooring look like? Do we have uh, furniture concerns, uh, parking lots, sidewalks, and then also even our stairwells and our escalators? Fall protection general requirements have been OSHA's most cited work 
place safety and health standard for 12 consecutive fiscal years. And also the agency standard on training requirements for fall protection has been a mainstay on its top 10 list as well. Um, So what steps can employers take to keep this from being such a problem? In order to comply with the OSHA's fall protection standards, we, we would first recommend, you know, consulting with those professionals out there and really assessing those building designs to figure out where those fall exposures are for our workers and our end users. Specifically, I would suggest, you know, organizations looking at creating a site-specific fall protection plan. Uh, which is going to lay out those specific details, such as where employees are going to tie off and where guardrails are going to be at. Also, we would suggest having a fall protection permit system in place, um, where now we're focusing specifically on fall protection during our inspections uh, in order to plan for those potential falls in our risky areas. And all this really leads up to those infamous hierarchy of controls when it comes to fall protection. And first and foremost, we want to start with that elimination stage, right? So in order to avoid those falls, um, you know, employers really should coordinate with the design of those particular systems with an architect. Maybe we prefabricate uh, something in a controlled work environment. And really, could we consider working at ground level instead of at a height. Again, can we eliminate uh, uh, these different types of fall concerns out there? Um, The next step in our hierarchy of controls is substitution. Uh, This would involve a change in the sequence of our activities. Perhaps it's an adjustment in the project schedule. Uh, The next step uh, is gonna be followed by our infamous engineering controls. Uh, And these could be Uh, uh, you know, establishing an edge protection system, perhaps uh, implementing guardrails, even safety nets, for example. Next in line, we look at our administrative controls. So is there a way that we can involve restriction of access and even setting up, uh, as example, um, warning line systems? And then the last step in our hierarchy of controls is issuing that personal protective equipment, such as our fall restraints and our fall arrest systems. Week three of National Safety Month focuses on heat-related illness. Hazardous occupational heat exposure can be present indoors or outdoors. With that, David, what are some industries where you commonly have seen workers experience heat-related illness? Some of those outdoor industries uh, may include agriculture. It could be construction, uh, specifically when we're doing road and roofing projects. We also have um, uh, landscaping and uh, oil and gas operations. Uh, As far as indoor industries, these may include uh, bakeries, kitchens, even laundries. Uh, You know, think think about those type of industries that generate, uh, uh, you know, heat, right? Um, Electrical utilities, because we got these boiler rooms, we could also have our fire services, We're looking at the iron and steel mills and foundries, and even in some of our warehousing. David, how would you describe what a heat-related illness is and how can it be prevented? So that's a loaded question. (laughs) So a heat-related illness really occurs when you have heat dissipation that does not happen quickly enough. And really what we're talking about here, it's when the internal body temperature keeps rising 
and the worker may experience those symptoms uh, such as thirst, irritability, perhaps a rash, maybe even cramping, heat exhaustion, or even heat stroke. And when we talk about heat dissipation, you know, the human body really relies on its ability to get rid of this excess of heat. Um, this is to maintain that healthy internal body temperature, especially when we're physically active uh, and in a warm environment. And so heat dissipation does happen naturally through sweating and increased blood flow to the skin. But when we have workers working in these external, you know, these environmental heat conditions and also when they're asked to do physical activity, now we have the chance that our workers may experience heat stroke, uh, which is really the most severe type of uh, heat-related illness. Um, this is where our workers are experiencing mental dysfunctions such as unconsciousness, confusion, disorientation, even slurred speech. And so during these heat waves, our workers may experience these heat-related illnesses, again, primarily from exertion or that metabolic heat generated by the muscle activity in the body, and or we have these environmental heat illnesses. Um, and we also need to include in here perhaps even heat and relative humidity that may occur in hot motor vehicles. And so how do we prevent these? Well, with management commitment and our leadership preventing and providing these most effective controls, heat-related illness is preventable. We must also consider workers who've not been in these work environments. And so they need to build that tolerance. They need to acclimatize themselves to the heat. Um, you know, especially during the first few days uh, uh, in a warm or a hot environment. And so some other things that we can do to encourage our workers uh, to prevent these different types of heat illnesses is they should be consuming adequate fluids, right? Water and sport drinks. We should maybe consider uh, shorter shifts, right? With frequent rest breaks uh, in the shade or at least away from those different types of heat sources. We should also empower our supervisors and our workers to make those changes to our workload by slowing down that physical activity, right? Like reducing those manual handling speeds. We can also schedule work for the morning uh, in order to keep the body temperatures down in those warm environments. Again, we should be taking frequent breaks and then quickly identifying any of those heat related illnesses. We can also make the workplace safer Again, if we look at those hierarchy of controls, right? Uh, engineering controls, uh, increasing air conditioning. We could have cooled air. We could have an increased airflow. All this is leading to that increased evaporative cooling. And so we will also encourage our supervisors, especially our workers in those warm environments to drink those uh, fluids on a regular basis, right? Water, sports drinks, and then at a minimum, it all is about that awareness and training. So we should be training. We should be talking to our workers on a regular basis about what these heat-related symptoms and first aid measures are. How can an employer or a fellow worker help when a worker suffers a heat-related illness? Yeah, so worst case scenario, we should be encouraging water, rest, and shade as our prevention, as well as our treatment 
for heat-related illnesses. We should be taking those workers to a cooler area. Again, do we have some shade? Do we have some air conditioning? We should cool those workers off immediately and using techniques such as immersing our workers in a cold water or an ice bath. We could uh, remove those outer layers of clothing, especially that heavy protective clothing that some of our workers are required to wear. We should be placing ice or cold, wet towels on the head, neck, trunk, armpits, and groin area, as an example. And then we should be using fans to circulate that air around the worker. Never leave a worker with a heat-related illness alone. We need to stay with these folks um, because those conditions can become worse. And when in doubt, we should call 911. Well, the fourth and final weekly topic of National Safety Month is hazard recognition. David, a two-part question for you. Where can employers and workers start with that principle? And does it truly begin with knowing what and where the hazard is? Employees are exposed to a variety of hazards, not only on the job, but also off the job. And really the first step in that effective management of risk is what we call hazard recognition, just what you alluded to. That all starts with some type of a worksite hazard analysis, which is a strategy used to identify those hazards in the workplace. And for us to be effective with that analysis, it's important for us to spend time planning and preparing for it. Uh, We should be asking those questions. What is the goal? What are we looking for? Who's going to be involved? And how are we going to inform our workers? And really, there's a variety of sources that can help us start in this process, right? We could have already reports from our supervisors. Perhaps we have a collection or a database of employee concerns. Um, We could look at some of the records that we already have access to, such as our OSHA recordables and our incident logs. And then really during that worksite evaluation, we're we need to consider those elements that make up our work system and where those hazards could exist. So we're looking at, number one, the environment, okay? When we look at the environment, we're looking at uh, what chemicals do we have in the workplace? What are those physical hazards, those biological hazards, and those ergonomic hazards? The second area that we look at when we do a worksite analysis is we look at the equipment, right? We could be looking at the construction plans. We could be looking at the uh, current tools and equipment um, that we are using within our workplace. The third area when we conduct this worksite evaluation is looking at our people, right? Are Are they actually using personal protective equipment? Do we have emergency equipment available and accessible? What are the safety devices that we're using, such as uh, lockout and tagout? Um, Do we and are we using the appropriate equipment, tools and machines? Um, Are we utilizing proper lifting techniques? And then and then the last area when we're looking at a worksite evaluation is really the system. Right. Do we have policies in place? Do we have processes and procedures? Do we have work practices which are formal, documented? And also informal that are kind of unwritten and, and uh, you know, the things that we do here, right? Uh, what management allows? What management condones? What are the roles and responsibilities 
uh, of those folks and how are they expressed and implied within the organization? So as we all know, workers encounter many hazards on the job. Could you tell us uh, about some common types and, and examples of each? Yeah, so um, that first area that we were looking at when we look at a worksite evaluation, we're looking at the environment, right? So we're looking at uh, chemical, physical, biological, and ergonomic hazards. So specifically, when we look at chemical hazards, we're looking at um, that excessive airborne concentrations of liquids, gases, vapors, even even those particulates, uh, those solids that may be in the form of a dust smoke, fumes, fibers, aerosols, and mists. When we look at the physical hazards, which are the easy ones to identify, right? We're looking at electrical. We're looking at fire and explosion. We're looking at noise, uh, thermal stress, caught in, on, or between, um, pinch points. We're looking at slip, trips, and falls, uh, struck against and struck by. Uh, specific examples when we look at biological hazards uh, could include bloodborne pathogens. It could include mold. Uh, we're looking at maybe uh, plant and insect poisonings, uh, tuberculosis, water, and wastewater. And then lastly, which is one of the top uh, uh, injuries in the workplace, is our ergonomic hazards, right? Repetition, those forceful exertions, uh, awkward postures. Uh, do we have contact stress? Uh, are we using tools that have uh, a significant vibration? What is our work area design? And uh, also, what is our tool or our equipment designs? Wrapping up with you here, David, what approaches or strategies are useful for controlling these hazards once they're identified? Yeah, so let's look at that infamous hierarchy of controls that we alluded to earlier. Um, uh, those five different controls, starting at what is the most effective to the least effective. Number one, most effective is elimination. Can we physically remove that hazard? So if work is being done at a height, can we possibly move that to the ground level instead, right? Elimination. Uh, the second control, uh, which is the second most effective, is substitution. Maybe we can substitute a different chemical for something that's less hazardous or even non-toxic. Uh, we go to the engineering controls. You know, can we isolate the worker from the hazard? Can we use mechanical devices such as uh, forklifts or even pallet jacks? We look at next our administrative controls where we're changing the way people work, right? We're providing education, we're providing uh, training, job rotation, housekeeping, for example. And then, and then the last uh, uh, and least effective, but tends to be the most popular, uh, unfortunately, is uh, those employees wearing the uh, personal protective equipment, right? We're wearing head, eye, ear, safety footwear, etc. Well, thank you once again, David, for joining us for this special episode. We also thank our listeners. We always appreciate the time you spend with us, and we appreciate your dedication in helping keep workers safe. Throughout National Safety Month, the National Safety Council offers numerous free resources to the public, including infographics, fact sheets, articles, a social media kit, and more. NSC members also will receive exclusive content during National Safety Month and all year long. Check out the resources by visiting nsc.org NSM. That's all for now. We wish everyone an enlightening and productive National Safety Month and ask that you please stay on the safe side. Mm -hmm.